there, there is definitely an issue of ego and, and power there of wanting to control how people perceive us. And so part of the, I think the progress in that area is letting go of some of that um, and not being so rattled or um, affected by the very natural fact that people are going to have different perceptions of us based on their own experience, based on their own location social location based on their own filters. And that has to do a bit with, with ego and a bit with our sense of, of self-protection and desire to, to completely shape how we are perceived and the impact we have in the world, which so much of that is, <laughs> is out of our control. Hello and welcome to Better Conversations with me, Siham Sirene, where we have conversations about good and rubbish conversations. If you'd like to appear on the show or have a burning question or consider yourself opinionated about conversations, please do drop me a line, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. Are you aware of how much you try to control how others perceive you? And what about your responsibility in conversations to keep channels open, to care about the feelings that we create in others when we talk or when we listen? As well as encouraging us to find a way to relinquish control over how others perceive us, my guest, Devin Singh, raises with us the notion of ethics of care in our conversations. It's a position that with age I've come to value more, that we are or ought to have concern for how others receive what we say and what we share in conversation exchanges way more than how others perceive us. For Devin, it's about being kind, attentive and present in our conversations. Perhaps his point of view has been strongly shaped by his own childhood living overseas with his diplomat mother and the professional path he has chosen for himself. And perhaps, in part, it's been predetermined by his own DNA. And like many of us, there are things that challenge us in conversations and determine how we show up in those conversations. The masks we wear in different places and with different people, our triggers and our attempts to control how others perceive us while wanting to deeply belong to groups and people that attract us. So I am a professor and academic as well as a leadership coach and a strategist. So I currently work at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. I'm an associate professor of religion and I research and teach on the connections between religion, culture, economics and business. And I come at it from a variety of angles that includes looking at the history behind some of our current assumptions around money exchange, uh, institutions and organizations, as well as ethical questions around exchange, around value, around where we place our value, around what we choose to pursue, and the relationships that we shape and construct in the kinds of groups and organizations that we build in uh, our society today. I've done some writing and some research on the interaction between money and religion in the history of the West and looked at some of the longstanding and ancient connections between how money has been shaped by religious thought and the reverse, how religious thought has been shaped by money and how that's given both of them a certain uh, deep, deep relationship that many of us, I think, sense, but aren't really clear on where that comes from. And so I was in my first book hoping to enlighten and shed some light on that. So tell me a little bit about who are the people 
Um, you touched on it a little bit. Who are the people that you have conversations with on a regular basis? In the classroom, I'm having conversations, of course, with my students and facilitating meaningful and ideally transformative conversations that they have with one another. And these are students uh, that come from a variety of backgrounds. I mean, we might have certain stereotypes about what Ivy League students are like, but um, there, there is a good diversity of background from students from the variety of social classes and many that are first-generation college students as well. Um, and so getting them a uh, acclimated to and learning the skills of uh, critical and analytical com- conversations where they learn to to analyze and assess texts, where they learn to critique ideas and assess the logic of arguments and learn to um, persuade and share their, their perspectives and opinions meaningfully um, as well and to engage society meaningfully. So that's certainly a primary group that I am having conversations with is college students. Um, also, as a researcher, writer, and scholar, I have a certain ongoing set of conversations with other scholars, other academics, and so do research and writing and and publish journal articles that hopefully are pushing the conversation forward around very um, specific sets of ideas and arguments that uh, perhaps a lot of the public might not be particularly interested in, but uh, there's a small handful of scholars that are invested in some of these very Mm -hmm. specific kinds of arguments and, and questions. And then um, the broader public, and that that may be hoping to write op-eds and um, publish in more popular periodicals so that I can have conversations with with those outside academia, um, speaking in a variety of contexts, whether um, for um, organizations and nonprofits, uh, corporations. And then finally, mm-hmm. the, the work that I do, of course, in, in coaching and shaping leaders in business and corporate contexts. There are a number of conversations that I have there. And and and, and as, as you know, as an executive coach and, and leadership coach, that conversations are crucial to that sort of formation process that happens. And really so much happens in the context of those of that, of that interchange. Well, and they do. And, and I liked your distinction that, you know, you have some very public conversations, you have um, small group conversations, you have private conversations. Um, and something else that you said um, is is around, you know, conversations with scholars. But I imagine when you're writing stuff, you're also having internal conversations with yourself. Um, about, Absolutely. You know, what you're about to write or think or how you're going to position something. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a lot of internal conversations with myself in, in a lot of different contexts. Um, I am very much an internal processor. So I, I am the sort of stereotypical think before I speak um, person and, and that can be limiting and there are, there are limit, limiting factors that I've struggled to overcome. Um, and also it's certainly there are there are benefits to that that kind of processing. But as I write, I'm definitely having conversations with myself. A lot of my writing in terms of earlier drafts is is that sort of free stream of consciousness writing where I'm really talking to myself, working out my ideas. And, and I've found that a certain kind of idea and a certain kind of conversation almost always, well, I shouldn't say almost always, but often needs to be worked out in writing for me. Um, so it's interesting how conversations can be oral and and in in direct embodied kinds of exchanges where one is face to face, but also conversations can be in written form and and those are different. Um, And Mm. and sometimes we, we, we express ourselves in in different ways in these different mediums. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I, you know, because I think, 
the the distinction that there are some internal conversations and we talk about people sometimes being um, verbal processors, right? And they do their thinking as they're talking. Right. Um, but um, a good deal of us, perhaps in the space where you are writing, you are trying to communicate something, um, it becomes more of an internal process. Do you find you can switch, you you can do the the verbal processing as well as the internal introspective processing? I can. It's been an acquired skill. Um, my, As I mentioned, my natural disposition has been internal processing. And I would say I'm still very dominant in that. But I have learned to it almost feels like taking a leap sometimes. I don't necessarily have the words in my in my mind that I would normally feel comfortable with before speaking, but I've tried just to start speaking and, and let the words come. And, and that that is an acquired skill and one can um, work on that and gain those kinds of skills. Um, so I do, I do experience that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because we're also, as coaches, have that, I mean, that's that's the mode of helping our clients is helping them think through and and a lot of that is through conversation so for them um it is that but often obviously there are times when they just need to internally reflect and allow them that time to think as well absolutely yeah there's an important rhythm i think between those and that's something that i work on with my clients is encouraging certain practices and habits of reflection whether it's journaling and and taking time to to think and reflect you know in the quiet of of their own sort of space and mind Um, and then of course externally to to talk and to process and i think and you, you mentioned these internal conversations and i think that's one of the important steps for growth is becoming more aware of the internal conversations that we are all having with ourselves and i think we have different levels of awareness of them and the effects that that they have on us in terms of what we're telling ourselves about ourselves and this gets into ideas of limiting beliefs and the kinds of scripts that we that we may be running sometimes on autopilot and mm-hmm. so i think shedding light on those internal conversations and being aware of those and those can come through again through journaling and and quiet reflection but also through talking and realizing oh wow i'm actually phrasing or thinking about something in this way and i hadn't realized that until i until i spoke it out in this way mm-hmm. and that's um that can be quite um discerning dis- disconcerting is the word i'm looking for absolutely when you, when you hear yourself say something and you oh i didn't really did i mean it that way or <laughs> or that came across <laughs> too strong um, right and so yeah um, it, and finding that comfort with being able to to express it, um, and then if you need to retract and try again. Absolutely, yeah. Of course, there's a long sort of history to talk therapy and to psychotherapy, and we joke about Freudian slips and the slip of the tongue. Um, but there's very much something to uh, the unexpected encounter with with how you think about something, how you frame something that often comes out simply in in talking, in conversation, and not realizing the kinds of connections you might be making with something or the kinds of value judgments you might be putting on something until you express it in a certain way. And also mm-hmm. have it have it reflected back to you. And this is, of course, where conversation comes in and where certain skills of conversation come in to have a to have a attentive listener, an attentive listener reflect back to you what they're hearing. Um, and sometimes that can be a, a helpful mirror to hold up to you to, to realize how you're framing certain things. So um, let's jump a little bit here. And I'm 
interested to understand what a better conversation looks, feels, sounds like to you? A better conversation is one where ideally both parties are present and that that can mean a variety of things. Obviously, if they can't be physically present, then they're present in the sense of being attentive, being there, invested in the moment and in the in the interchange. And that's that happens less often than we would like to admit, I think. I think there are ways that we are, particularly in our current society of, of distraction and multitasking, that it's easy not to be fully present in a conversation. And so that deals with one's attention span, that deals with one's uh, emotional energy and um, will to, to, to be there and to tune in. So I think that's sort of foundational and, f- and fundamental, um, but also something that we often have to work to achieve. Uh, there are, uh, of course, other things like um, posture and and facing one another and engaging in um, the kinds of um, body language that would indicate that sort of attentiveness and interchange, whether it's eye contact, nodding, um, facing one's, one's body toward the speaker. All these things are subtle cues that I think are also very important. I mentioned, I mentioned active listening. And I think that that's also key is reflecting back and being able to, to listen and process what one is hearing from, from another person. Um, and there are questions that, and directions that one can take in terms of questioning that show interest and show investment as well in, in the speaker and in, in the interchange, mm-hmm. um, that, that's one side of things. I think for the for the person who at, at the moment is speaking, I think there's a a value for openness and for vulnerability and transparency that I think can be difficult to to go to a space that's difficult to go to, but I think is ideal as well. Um, and so that also speaks to the ways that we create spaces that can um, honor vulnerability and honor. Um, openness and transparency. And that requires a level of empathy and compassion by, by both parties and a, and a kind of char- charity or charitableness of um, expressing that, you know, they're here to, that we're, we're here to achieve understanding. We're here to achieve um, real communication. And that, that requires a certain posture of graciousness, I think, in, in, in order for the exchange to be effective. Mm. It's there's an what I heard you talk about was an attentiveness, a sense that you are valuing and you are focused on the person um, who you are um, there in front of or who is in front of you, um, and that you are taking in all of their being. You talked about body language, you talked about you know phrasing, all, all of these things. Um, give us either clues about the other person that interest us and draw us in but equally that that drawing in makes the other person feel safe with us would you say absolutely absolutely and of course in our increasingly um, mediated world uh, via technology it's not always possible to do all that um, and you know we speak to each other over uh, over the internet over the phone um, over mm-hmm. video and whatnot so that's not always possible but there are ways that we can try to work to w- whether it's with the tone of our voice and the kinds of questions we ask to convey that presence um, so it is it's it's emotional it's it's affect it's related to the affect the, to the affective side of our our being. Uh, it's also ethical in a certain sense. There's a morality to that in the sense of, of communicating care, of communicating attentiveness. Um, these are things that I think we, we need and require as humans, even if we're not fully aware of them. And um, 
it does promote a, a safer sense of, um, transparency in, in a way that, that we can ideally open up more to one another. It's interesting. You talk about morality. <laughs> um, it's almost like there's a, we have a responsibility to be present, but you've had an interesting childhood. Um, and I wondered how much that has played into and shaped your perspective on conversations. I'm sure it certainly has. Um, so I grew up uh, the the child of a single working mother who was also a foreign service officer, and her job took us to various parts of the world. And so I uh, was born in the U.S. but moved to Cameroon, West Africa, very early on, and then uh, to Morocco in North Africa, and spent most of my childhood, about seven years total, in these countries with a variety of other um, short trips in between. And so being exposed to a cross-cultural, uh, interreligious setting where understanding was something that was very vital and important. Um, obviously, my, my mother's work in a foreign service and diplomatic context also brought up issues of the importance of diplomacy, the importance of, of a certain kind of conversation that would ideally foster mutual understanding between nations, states, uh, individuals, leaders, cultures on a variety of levels. Um, and being exposed to different communication styles across cultures, all these things, I think, shaped my, my sensitivity to and, and awareness of the dynamics of conversations and how we uh, sort of implicitly and unconsciously pick up different codes and different scripts and, and how we perform conversations in different settings. And, uh, and that, that's another important, I think, level of awareness are the different hats that we often put on, sometimes, uh, again, unconsciously in, ter in terms of the kinds of ways we communicate and ways we speak, depending on the settings that we're in. Um, even if we don't think of ourselves as savvy uh, culture culture crossers we we are navigating different kinds of cultures our home home life the work context different groups or organizations that we um, move in and work in and within those we are often subtly picking up different cues of how to communicate and how to how to express ourselves and i think a greater awareness of that uh, can be helpful for achieving better conversations as well there's an element of what I find interesting about your observation and growing up in uh, and witnessing sort of exchanges in diplomatic circles and so on, there is a there is a style of exchange. There is a style of um, socializing um, that I feel goes with worlds like that. And similarly, if you are in the military and you grow up in that world, um, that we are, we witness and we adopt and we can switch that on at times when we need to. Um, and that can shape our language, can shape uh, how open we might feel um, in those situations um, or how guarded sometimes we may even be. Um, do you think that's a fair uh, thought or point of view? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are all very strong communication cultures in terms of a, a certain code, a certain set of ethics, a certain mm -hmm. set of postures. And, um, and it's funny, I often feel like diplomacy, even though I think it's a, it's a good word, it often gets a bad rap and people talk about uh, diplomats and the international 
conversations that are had as sometimes um, papering over, uh, you know, more difficult confrontations that need to happen, or um, steering around uh, uncomfortable topics, etc. Um, and yet, I think diplomacy is a really important and, and helpful skill, and I, I think the world can continue to use more of it in terms of how to um, achieve levels of understanding and, and mutual understanding and mutual benefit. I, mean, I think that's that's the goal, I and mean, there's kind of an implicit negotiation that's happening uh, in in diplomacy as well. And so, there are skills that that I think one can deploy to to try to achieve that. Um, and as, as opposed to sort of one-sided uh, forms of communication that we, uh, particularly these days, are seeing in the political arena. Oh, I, I think it's so true, not just in the political arena, right? In the, in the workplace. Yes. Um, there's a tendency to not hold back sometimes when it's actually an act of self-sabotage um, to, to throw something in, to throw in a comment because you're trying to make a point or win, you know, score a point or prove something um, that can be really unhelpful. I mean, it may feel good <laughs> to to express yourself and and point your finger at someone, but does it get you the result? Is it? Are you missing that chance to negotiate, as you say? Um, and um, so the skills of diplomacy, uh, I completely agree. Can there's a lot there to to learn from? Absolutely, yeah. That's a great example. I think that happens. That, that's a, that's a strong temptation in meetings and in other uh, work contexts, where there is a desire to feel seen and to perhaps satisfy uh, one's ego or or desire for recognition and it's to get in that that last word or get in that word edgewise or assert one's opinion in a way that um, is less about achieving understanding and progress and more about um, again feeling recognized and feeling like one has been valued and, and that again that may come from issues that are deeper in terms of one not feeling recognized and one not feeling valued and those are things that one that that we, we should address and try to address whether it's when with one's own self-perception or with actual power and communication dynamics in the workplace that need to be addressed. But uh, simply sort of forcing one's view and opinion for the sake of uh, feeling that moment of power, um, I agree, is is often not helpful. And in, your, in the world that you grew up in, um, so you were witness to lots of different styles, um, cultures, religions, um, and, uh, and you were adapting. Um, in those environments and taking your cue from um, other people around you, I imagine. Who would you say has influenced your style of communication? So I mentioned my mother and, and growing up with her, and it was the two of us for a while, for nine years until my younger brother came came along. Um, and so there was definitely a kind of a crucible of um, in, in, an intensive experience of being exposed to her communication styles and, and watching her interact um, for good and for ill. Um, and so seeing sort of the failure of conversation in her life too with, with relationships and with um, other kinds of interactions, but also seeing her do conversations very well and her professional life. And so she, she definitely has shaped me greatly and continues to, to influence me in terms of um, how I think about um, engaging with, with people. I mean, she's one of the most empathetic and compassionate people that I know. And those are values that I, that I hold to um, dearly. And I think also matter greatly in conversations. Um, I, 
it's pr- perhaps no coincidence, given that I've become a, a professor and educator, that I've also been deeply shaped by certain teachers um, at different stages of my of my development. Um, teachers who took the time to to listen and to recognize uh, my abilities, my gifts, to speak back and challenge me in terms of my shortcomings. Uh, those were moments where I felt very much seen and heard and recognized and also cared for. So again, these these values of presence and attentiveness. Uh, empathy and compassion, um, and being challenged and pushed in ways that that felt respectful to who I was um, at different stages of my development um, have been have been extremely influential. Yeah, and, and that's something I've heard you say a few times is that is that sense of morality, that responsibility to listen and um, to validate the other person um, by giving them our attention fully. Yeah, and I, so I, I mean, I, I'm a scholar of of some of these issues, and so I do think about these things in, in scholarly ways too. But there are a variety of ethical theories and moral theories, and I won't get too academic on us. But um, there, there is a ethical philosophy called the ethics of care um, that I am very much uh, sympathetic to, and and that's part of what it it asserts is that our desire for care and our need for extending and receiving care is fundamental to our human existence. Um, and that beyond sort of trying to find abstract moral theories for, oh, we should always do X in this situation and Y in this situation, that rather if we start with this fundamental recognition that we are beings that are dependent on one another and are called to be in some ways altruistic and to care selflessly for others, that that um, shapes so much of um, where we can begin to begin to theorize about what it means to be ethical and moral, that that's kind of a a north star of a moral compass is that that, that care and concern and, and and i resonate very strongly with that with that ethical approach it's interesting isn't it how um if we're feeling emotionally charged bearing that in mind that morality that that uh, ethics of care can be really hard if the if the context or the issue or the point of tension is very personal. That's harder, don't you find, to main, to hold on to that. So you know, you, you we can be very good, as you described your mum, you know, in her professional life, being um, very proficient at conversations, and then in in a private personal world, we can be we can find it really hard with the people closest to us. Absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 quite a challenge to remain, to to maintain that posture of care, and just to just to to point out too that the an, an ethics of care doesn't necessarily say that we should always be completely selfless, one sided, unconditional, and sacrificial. It acknowledges that we in two, we in turn also need care, um, and so there's a vulnerability there as well. And so that that means that we can acknowledge and recognize the ways that we. Um, may feel hurt, may feel overwhelmed, may feel attacked and in need of, of care as well. So there's a reciprocity. There's a, there's a give and take, I think, in, in relationships and in, in conversation as well. So that it's not simply this sort of, um, you know, a- acting as a martyr and, uh, and being sort of stoic in terms of, um, you know, one's emotional needs. I think there are ways that we can more helpfully express those needs and express those those desires and those are skills mm. we can learn. But it's not about shutting those parts of us down and suddenly being 
um, you know, again, robotic or some sort of, you know, what, what, we, what we might imagine as some sort of mystical sage who doesn't have any sorts of <laughs> <laughs> any needs and can sort of sit there meditatively and, and respond. Um, and I think acknowledging those, those deep needs and deep desires can be a very powerful thing. Yeah, 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 for sure. Tell me what would, um, tell me about the worst conversation you've ever had. Bad conversations for me and, and conversations that leave a, a bad taste in my, my mouth are, are those where, where I feel uh, prejudged, where I feel like I've been, where a lot of assumptions have been made about me, um, where I've been relegated and pigeonholed, put in, put in a box. Um, I've realized as I've, as I've gone through my life that I'm, uh, I have a very strong visceral reaction to gossip and to, to those that gossip and those that listen to gossip. And, and I think that's, you know, partly shaped by my experience of always being the new kid at school, moving around, um, being, um, in new countries and new, new school situations. And by the time I was 10, I had moved about 10 different times and been to seven different schools. And so I had that experience uh, very dramatically. And so I think we're being very sensitive to the kinds of gossip and, and talk that people would have potentially about me, the assumptions that were made about me. Um, and I, and I have a very visceral, angry reaction even today, um, in whether it's in the workplace or organizations or in friendship circles where people will make assumptions or share their own baggage about somebody with somebody else before that person's had the chance to make their own opinions or draw their own conclusions. Um, and so, uh, I, again, my experience is a feeling like that where somebody has, has made their, drawn their conclusions about me or made assumptions about me, um, based on hearsay, based on, um, whatever impressions they may have drawn rather than a direct encounter or a direct exchange with me, um, is still something that, that I think, um, I find very challenging and very, very hurtful even. Um, and so again, that, that leads to, I think that's no doubt shaped my own commitment to, uh, this sense of presence and sense of attending to and paying attention to the other person of trying as best as one can to take them at their, at their word. Um, another thing that I talk about with my coaching clients and with others is to, that we're not mind readers and to stop being mind readers. And so that we, we often find ourselves, you know, <laughs> Kevin, as, are we not mind I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as obvious as that sounds, we do this all the time where I hear people will say, well, so-and-so did this because, or so-and-so just thinks this about me or so-and-so is doing this because they want this. And it's often completely uh, conjecture in terms of what, what the conclusions we're drawing based on, um, our assumptions based on our perceptions and that, that don't come from direct conversation, um, with people. And I, and I also say that we have to take people at their word, regardless of whether, you know, if we, if we suspect ulterior motives, et cetera, that for the most part, you know, until we're given abundant evidence, otherwise we need to take people at their word. If they, they say they mean something or they're doing something because of this, we, we need to accept that. <laughs> um, and so again, um, I think, failure of conversation can come from those, those kinds of things, the assumptions, the perceptions, the attempts at mind reading that we, we so often fall into. Why do we do that? Do you think? I mean, I think part of it is our, our, the nature of us as, as, as creatures, as human beings, that we are this inter interesting species that has learned, um, learned language and communicates with language, but also still very much uses other nonverbal cues and other kinds of perception as well. Um, 
I mean, the, the problem of consciousness of what it means that we have a, a self-awareness and that others have a self-awareness is, is this kind of ongoing philosophical problem, but it's a huge, I think, so- source of, um, anxiety for us as, as creatures that there's this other mind out there, these other minds out there that are perceiving us, that are seeing us and, and judging us or valuing us. And, and we get so much of our sense of self and value from what we believe are the perceptions of others. So it, it's part of, it's part of our, uh, in some ways I think it's in our DNA. It's also in how we're socialized, which, which means that we can try to construct better kinds of social relationships where those things have, are less damaging. Um, but it, it's definitely in the nature of, of, of who we are in, in human society as well. And for you, when you are feeling, when you're feeling judged, um, the, as I'm listening to you, what I'm wondering is, is that the lack of control that sometimes we feel when we someone has prejudged us and we don't have an opportunity to speak into it? Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point. And I, I, absolutely. I think there's absolutely something to that um, in terms of wanting to control the narrative, wanting to control uh, how we're perceived. And, you know, this can get into a lot of issues of personal branding as well. And, and, um, all of that, uh, in, in more of the, the, the workplace setting, but there, there's definitely an issue of ego and, and power there of wanting to control how people perceive us. And so part of the, I think the progress in that area is letting go of some of that, um, and not being so rattled or, um, affected by the very natural fact that people are going to have different perceptions of us based on their own experience, based on their own location, social location, based on their own filters. Um, so that's a fact of life. And to, to accept that, um, I think is a huge step and to, to learn to relinquish a, a bit of that control, um, I think is, is key. So yeah, that, that's a, that's a really important observation, I think. Um, and that has to do a bit with, with ego and a bit with our sense of, of self-protection and desire to, to completely shape how we are perceived and the impact we have in the world, which so much of that is, <laughs> is out of our control. Mm, mm. And this, this, um, this thing about mind reading to me, I wonder whether it's that, our desire to belong is so strong that we are, you know, uh, we're alert <laughs> to anything that might counter that, to anything that creates a risk of us not belonging. Absolutely. That? Absolutely. That's a, that's another wonderful observation. And, and again, speaks to our, our nature as a species and the long history of, of homo sapiens as um, communal creatures. I mean, we are still very much shaped by and and we require community we require belonging as part of who we are um and so and for for much of our existence as a species being excluded from a group meant death right that you know we needed mm. to be part of a group mm. to, to survive very very frankly and and when it, when it comes down to to kind of brass tacks, so to speak, the reality of it. And so there's a, there's a fundamental need and desire there that survival means inclusion. Um, and exclusion, uh, means, means a certain kind of death. Um, and today we speak about it in terms of social death, in terms of, um, the, the technical term anime, this kind of sense of being, a, a 
sort of lonely and isolated and displaced, even in modern society, even if we're surrounded by people. Um, and this can, this can get into whole, whole set of conversations, of course, around social media and the ways that people feel isolated and judged, even in the context of, of social media and the kinds of loneliness and anxiety that that's, in, that that's causing. Um, but yes, it funda- fundamentally at some level, it, it relates to our, our need for, for belonging, for relationship, for feeling seen and being recognized. And so there is that, that fear and that worry that, you know, what will others, what will the group decide? What will the group say? What will the group conclude about me? And what will that mean for my own, um, uh, survival, uh, my own destiny as a creature? Mm. What's your worst habit, Devin, in a conversation? I think I still I I have people pleaser tendencies. I I, I want to avoid conflict and discomfort, and um, part of that is shaped by my my childhood and seeing a lot of uh, familial conflict, a lot of fights and outbursts of anger um, in my family of origin and my extended family. That was sort of the norm in terms of how anger was expressed was through outbursts and rupture and violence. And so I think um, I've been sensitized to that, oversensitized to that and the desire to avoid that. And so in conversation that, that may mean avoiding saying the hard thing, avoiding saying the, the confronting some issue or bringing up a potential point of disagreement, a potential point of, of tension. So that's been an acquired skill, something that I've worked on for, for decades and, and have made good progress in, but it's still there. <clears throat> it's still something that's an ongoing process for me uh, to, to find the, the space and moments in conversation and to set up the kinds of environments where I feel like these things can be brought up in ways that hopefully will not rupture the relationship, that will um, allow more meaningful exchanges that will allow us to go deeper in the relationship and in the issues at hand. Um, and so that's something that I, that I guard against and am aware of in my own conversational tendencies. I, I think that's something we all as creatures um, have in common, right? Um, most people, yes. most of us, and certainly um, guests on the podcast, the conflict piece is the toughest piece and and you know when i think about just you talking about your childhood and and the influence that has had on you is it any surprise that um you know when we're witnessing that when we're young when we we don't have a full um control over language and conversation never mind our emotions and and how a situation makes us feel to to be able to put words to a situation that's uncomfortable that we struggle with that um as adults that we find you know it's easier to stay away from uh and avoid having uh that really important chat um, so that you can move past it because it's, a, it, it's emotionally draining. It's exhausting, um, potentially, um, Absolutely. whether it's in our personal relationships or at work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, as, as, as children, as you mentioned, because we don't have the context, because we don't have the, um, you know, a full range of, of skills and understanding, we make certain assumptions and make certain connections between, between 
the, the things that we observe, um, you know, so that, for instance, you know, talking about a difficult subject leads to relational rupture and breakdown. And we make that connection and, and that, that gets sort of seared into our psyche and seared into our uh, subconscious scripts that we we continue to run as adults. And until we, re, we, re, we revisit those things, question and challenge those things and rework those things, they often continue to dictate, um, how we, how we approach conversation and conflict. So it, I think it is, it is important to be aware of those things and be aware of the kinds of shaping moments, moments of trauma, but also long-term shaping <clears throat> in terms of, um, family of origin and, and early moments that, that have um, influenced our perception of these things. Um, and, and again, that the, these things can be running in the background that we're not aware of and needing to bring those things to the light, to, to bring those um, internal conversations out and re- rework them if need be. There's also something that I hear in, in what you say, in, in why it's important for you to make sure that the other person feels that they have your attention. Um, in your notes, you talked about um, a fear of making the other person uncomfortable, even though there is something really important that you need to communicate to them. You are conscious also, it seems, of not making that person uncomfortable or putting them in, in the position of, of what, what is that? I think part of that relates to this, this fear of relational rupture or breakdown that if, if somebody is uncomfortable with what I'm saying and bringing up that it may at some point lead to the end of that conversation, the end of that, that relationship. So there is that concern. I think it's also shaped by my upbringing in intercultural, cross-cultural situations where there is very much that guiding concern of not wanting to um, communicate or act in ways that that go too much against uh, the particular culture of the, the person with whom one is speaking or interacting. Um, and so there's something there that's very, I think, that that's, that's legitimate and makes sense in terms of wanting to honor and respect those cultural mores and cues. Uh, but of course, that can be problematic if it limits actual communication and exchange. And there needs to be spaces where some of those things might be called out or challenged um, or, or um, you know, re- reworked in certain ways. So, you know, just in, in hearing you reflect back to me, my own concerns, it does strike me that, that some of that it really sounds like the kinds of things that people think and talk about when, when we talk about cross-cultural communication as well and how to communicate in ways that will not alienate the listener, that will um, help them to, to hear what one has to say. And, and so there's a good discomfort and I think a, a distracting discomfort. And there are ways that we can try to work to minimize the distracting discomfort, the discomforts that don't need to be there, that don't need to be, be brought up. Um, because they're, they're more about the kinds of distance between us as speakers um, based on culture, based on communication styles, whatever it may be. And then there are the important discomforts that we need to bring up um, that, that, that need to be addressed and, and, re- and ideally rectified. Yeah, you remind me of, of this um, position that I have, which is, you know, to, to a large extent, we are responsible for making sure that the other person is listening to us, um, that we are saying things appropriately to keep the communication channels open, to not shut them down. Um, 
you know, we, we touched on it earlier, this sort of wanting to uh, feel good in the moment and to say something um, that sounds smart or whatever, but it's actually unhelpful and it can close down um, communication. Um, it can shut down a conversation in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I think if, it, if it's coming from a place of wanting to, to look good or to, to appear competent, or to um, you know project a certain self image, then it yeah it's it's going to alienate. Um, it's going to potentially shut down uh, the conversation. <clears throat> if it comes from a place of attending to, focusing on, being aware of the other person, and wanting to avoid needlessly alienating them, um, then I think it's you know that that can be helpful. And, and we we give a lot of lip service to empathy. Um, I think empathy is is crucial, and it's perhaps not understood well enough and not talked about enough, but, but empathy partly involves in trying to some degree to put oneself in, in the shoes of, of another. And I think that work of trying to bridge that gap can help in conversations and can help the other person to feel seen and heard in ways that foster, foster understanding. Um, but of course, but of course, empathy can be done poorly in terms of just sort of assumptions, pigeonholing, et cetera. And so I think empathy needs to always be connected to active listening and to really listening to and seeing and reflecting back uh, what one is experiencing with the person, as opposed to just sort of coming and saying, well, I know that based on X, Y, and Z from your demographic or your experience that you must think this and feel this, and I'm going to be empathetic by sort of putting you in a box and um, assuming I know where you're coming from, right? And that that's can be a way that and I think attempts to be empathetic can be abused or, or go wrong. Um, but again, if it, if it shapes, it is a, shapes a posture of, of active listening and questioning and, and with care, trying to understand the other person that can be very powerful. And what do you think gets in the way of a good conversation? A lot of the things that we've mentioned, um, this desire for self-recognition, this desire for power and, and being seen, um, it relates to the, the kinds of masks that we often wear and, uh, cells that we perform. Um, you know, I think that based on what we think the other person wants to, to see or hear, or, or based on us trying to control the narrative and trying to appear in a certain way can lead us to put up um, certain masks and, and perform in, in ways that I think are um, inauthentic. And of course, there's a lot of, I think, debate and talk about what authenticity means and is there sort of one true core to who we are. And I think those are important debates to, to have. And, and I kind of err on the side of thinking that we it's, it's okay to talk about multiple selves that we have and multiple sort of centers that we're not just one kind of person all the time. And, and authenticity doesn't mean always sort of sticking to um, you know who we are in every situation in terms of um, you know not budging and being sort of uh, unaccommodating, etc. But there are ways that we can remain authentic to who we are while still also trying to meet the the hearers or the the speaker where they are as well. Um, mm -hmm. So being aware of these masks, being aware of these automatic um, ways that we perform certain certain roles, I think, is also important to to you know deal with what gets in the way of, of good conversation it's um it's fascinating isn't it because there are that certain situations bring out different um parts of our personality we can be more gregarious and with some people in some situations and more reserved and um subdued in others um so i i think that's interesting that you talk about it as masks because i think in the workplace 
um, we are really susceptible to wearing different masks. Um, you know, we have to be um, certain things to certain people, um, depending on on context. Um, and so we we move between all those different personas, um, sometimes completely unaware, but taking our cues from who's in the room, um, what's the topic of conversation, um, and you know what's how how much risk are we you know discussing or trying to navigate um, in this room? Absolutely, it's very common, very very normal. I will say, and I think it's it's at some level it's okay. It makes sense that we speak and perform and and code switch as it were in different settings. And this is something again that I take from my experience crossing cultures and uh, being in in you know, a variety of different settings in my life. Um, and I, I speak about this often with students who come to talk to me who, who are first generation college students who might feel sort of out of their um, element in a um, posh Ivy League setting and understandably want to, to discuss what it means to be authentic to who they are coming from working class backgrounds, for instance, and um, coming from family contexts where their their kind of speech and discourse was not shaped by the the the, the or similar to the ways that we might speak in the classroom. And so we talk about mm. code switching and, and the fact that that's okay. And that's something that we do um, for the sake of survival, but also just to, again, to navigate the various rooms that we find ourselves in. And so in the workplace, that's very much uh, the same thing. Um, you know, of course, depending on our role and the tasks, we might be wearing different hats and communicate in different ways. Um, but also with different people and whether we're managing up, managing down, the different power relationships we find ourselves in, there may be the need to, to adjust how we talk and speak. And, and again, I don't think that that means we're being inauthentic or somehow being untrue. It doesn't mean that we have to be the same in every conversation and every setting. Um, you know, if it's if it's guided by empathy and care and a desire to be present to the other person, and also a desire to for there to be cooperation and progress and collaboration, and these are all important values um, in terms of team dynamics and interactions in the workplace. That that I think those things can steer steer us in helpful ways, even as we you know might switch how we express ourselves or how we phrase things or or interact. So, what do you feel is critical for you? Um, and getting other people to understand your perspective. One one challenge uh, that I find is that you know ideally I feel like um, you know spending time with 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 me, spending time with with somebody, and being present with them are are, are key to really understand understanding their perspective. And we talk about you know needing to walk in somebody's shoes really to to get to get their perspective, and that's kind of the ideal scenario. And that's obviously not always <clears throat> not always possible. We know we don't always we don't have the ability to sort of spend time deeply with every person that we're in conversation with. <clears throat> to fully get to um, and understand that perspective, and so then the question emerges: What does it mean to do this in ways that that maybe you know are more efficient or quicker, or just overcome the, these very natural limitations? And so, again, this is why I think attending to and and being um, present and listening to and being compassionate and empathetic with those that we're in conversation with is is one way to try to again bridge that gap and. Now, obviously, it won't do so perfectly or fully, but to um, let them be seen. And so, you know, for 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 myself, you know, I want to when I'm in conversation with people, and, and if I want to 
feel like they understand my perspective. It needs to have that, <clears throat> that sense of uh, people reflecting back to me what they've heard, um, you know, asking me questions that show that they want to know more and draw out more of, of, of who I am and my story. Um, and we all experience this and we talk about chemistry, conversational and relational chemistry, where we, we talk with certain people and for some reason we feel like we can go deep right away or we feel like we, you know, something just clicks and we have these effervescent dynamic conversations, mm. right? And with mm -hmm. others, it feels like this is more laborious and we need to really work at um, uh, an exchange. And so part of that, again, is how we have all been subtly uh, trained and shaped. And, and then we find these kinds of compatibilities, these kinds of ways that um, we and this other person click because of how we've been shaped. Um, and this also gets to intuition and the kinds of um, nonverbal ways that we sense and pick up on uh, one's attentiveness, uh, one's uh, intention in their communication with us, etc. And those can also be important cues with, with how we click with and, and feel understood and seen by someone. Sometimes connections take years. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes a conversation is not a singular conversation. It happens in small pieces, in little seeds over, a, a, you know, maybe multiple meetings. Absolutely. Um, right? Yeah. And, and I sense this, you know, sometimes um, this expectation on, or frustration that we should just connect. Right, mm. we we work in the same space. We have mutual um, understanding. We have needs that we you know we can trade, um, and um, and therefore it should be effortless. And and it's not. Or they always get off on the wrong foot. Right, mm -hmm. I always manage to rub you up the wrong <laughs> way. I don't know what it is. It's the way I walk in the room, or something I say winds you up. And um, and so. It's, there's a, there's an element of patience uh, I feel is needed to and and an acceptance maybe um, that it is what it is and and there are some things that you can do uh, to nourish and nurture it but sometimes that's just the way things are in conversations right yeah there's a lot that's valuable in what you said um i think that can be very freeing and liberating to be able to say yes i, I can't try to put um i can't let this interaction or these interactions let's say in a networking situation ha be overburdened with all these stakes that i'm putting on them um, and to realize that sometimes they will fall short of my expectation sometimes that connection and that that click that sense of chemistry won't happen um and so to be able to to let go of that expectation i think can be very freeing and can take a lot of burden off uh, off of us in these uh, important networking situations and, and, and workplace conversations. At the same time too, it also can be helpful to simplify things and to then say, okay, so given that there's so much going on and given that I'm overwhelmed by the, all the types of advice that I hear and, and ways that I'm supposed to be um, interacting, you know, what are the, some of the simple guidelines? And I think that's why having a, a, an ethic of care and to say, okay, you know, one of the basic things I can try to do is just demonstrate concern and care and interest in this person that I'm going to talk to. 
Um, you know, what, what, what does it mean to pay attention to them and to listen to them and to ask them questions to show genuine interest? Um, and having something simple like that as a simple guideline, I think, can also be really helpful um, so that we're not sort of running through this list in our minds of the, of the you know, top 20 things that we need to do to be dyna- dynamic communicators, um, et cetera, um, and to have a simple, a simple list of, you know, one or two uh, things to keep in mind. You know, am I, am I attending to this person? Am I um, showing my, my interest and, 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 and care? Um, and then also to, to what you mentioned about these scenarios where we feel like something is always being triggered, right? That we're always triggering something with someone or they're always triggering something with us. I mean, that's sort of a sign of, okay, there might need to be, we need, might need to carve out space for, um, you know, a longer, more intentional conversation to figure out what that is and what, 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 what is that about and how can we address that and change that? Um, and that's a little bit different, of course, than sort of a quick networking conversation. But if it's something repeated and something noticeable and a pattern, then that calls for, I think, uh, you know, ideally carving out space for um, a, a more uh, intentional and extended conversation about that issue. Devin, tell me what would be a key message um, that you would want to leave listeners with about having better conversations? I love what this podcast is about, uh, the centrality of conversations and bringing that to, to, to mind. I think that's something that we perhaps as people are aware of, but don't recognize enough and, and don't sort of give um, credence to. And so uh, I want people to take away the importance that com- uh, conversations matter, to realize that they matter, that this is where a lot of life happens is in the context of these exchanges and interchanges where relationships are built, um, where healing can happen, uh, where learning can take place, um, you know, where deep connection can be fostered. And so realizing the importance of conversations and the, and the need to, to do them well, um, and then to think about what that means. And, and as I, I think, as I've been stressing and as we've been, um, discussing the importance of showing up, being present of, of extending care, uh, attending to the other person. These are all, I think, fundamental sort of conversational ethics, if you will, um, you know, ethical guidelines that I think, um, you know, I would hope most people would want to incorporate and adopt into their own lives and, and um, workplace relationships, personal relationships, et cetera. And I think a lot can be gained. Um, a lot of deep connection, a lot of mutual understanding, a lot of progress and collaboration can happen through that kind of kindness, uh, atten- attention, and presence uh, as uh, people interact with one another. I love that. I might steal your <laughs> your phrase that conversations is where a lot of life happens. It really <laughs> does, right? Yeah, absolutely, does. absolutely. Um, it's it's our connection with the with the world outside ourselves. Yes, um, with people outside ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Devin, I have really enjoyed uh, the conversation with you today. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to talk about these important topics. Thank you for listening. You'll find show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast, including more information about all my guests and how to connect with them. Have you listened to previous episodes? What do you think? What could I be doing differently or adding in? Drop me a line, podcast at betterconversations.co.
Better Conversations with Siham Sirene is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. If you listen, please rate the podcast. Your vote does keep me honest. Until next time, I'm Siham Sirene and this has been A Better Conversation.